Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD, culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week we are tackling uh, perhaps the one of the single most famous passages in the entire Bible, certainly the one that has occasioned uh, some of the most interesting and colorful commentary, I think we can say, uh, the rising of the two beasts uh, in Revelations 13. Um, last week we dealt with the woman clothed with the sun and the dragon, uh, a kind of race across the heaven as uh, the woman labored to give birth to the child that was almost certainly Jesus, um, although in a kind of mystical, heavenly way. Um, one of the things I think we discovered in reading that passage is it seems to exist in a kind of outside of timeness. Uh, this week we kind of clatter down into history, into the world itself. The dragon has been defeated. He has been expelled from heaven along with his host. Satan has been, um, in the in the very classical sense, in the way we now think of Satan, Satan has fallen, and with him have fallen his angels, right? Um, this is the urtext from which all subsequent Satan lore comes. Uh, what's interesting about it, as we discussed, is it seems to happen in time, in history. Like, Satan, in John's mind, may fall during the operations of human history, which is fun to think about. We are now very definitely in that history. Um, of course, notably, the original copies of the book of Revelations don't mark chapter breaks, and here you have a very clear spillover um, as the action continues from last week. Um, there's basically two sections this week, the, the second one of which contains the 666 stuff, so it'll basically amount to a third section. So I'm just going to tackle them as they come here. Um, we spill over. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore. It is a really amazing um, theatrical uh, evocative image here. I had I saw one commenter, a Catholic commenter, talk about how this really reminds him of Sauron calling forth the Lord of the Nazgul. Um, and that is what happens. Uh, the dragon Satan calls forth an emissary. Uh, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its head were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it power, and it his power and his throne and great authority. Um, let's stop there and see what we can see. We've seen this character before, in fact. Um, it is the beast that was mentioned in uh, chapter 11. Remember when the two prophets were prophesying and that weird beast arose and was persecuting them. In 11.7, it says, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit and will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So we kind of knew this character was coming already. And of course, the sea, the abyss, the pit, they're all kind of the same thing, right? This is a chaos monster. Um, one of the ways to actually systematize the two beasts this week is to think about them as the two great chaos monsters of Jewish myth, Leviathan, the beast of the sea, and Behemoth, the beast of the land, right? Um, those are figures we see erupt into the Old Testament at various moments, um, and they seem to come from like almost like a primordial space. They, in fact, seem to come out of Jewish myth 
from before God was the only God and when he was, for example, slaying the chaos monsters to tame the earth with his heavenly court. Um, so Leviathan and uh, Behemoth actually map pretty well onto the beast of the sea here and the beast of the land, the beast of the earth, who we'll meet in a minute. Um, the other thing to note about him, of course, is that he sounds a lot like the dragon. In fact, he has a great many of the same features as the dragon, a sort of multi-headedness, the, what is it, seven seven heads? I don't even remember. <laughs> it says right here. Let me look. Um, ten horns and seven heads. So you can do the math on that yourself. Uh, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. I don't have to sound like a genius to tell you what these mean, because in fact we will get from within the text itself in a few chapters an explication for who this is. It is Rome. Um, and in fact the text will tell us that these uh, seven heads are the seven hills of Rome, um, etc. But what the, what the text actually does by telling us that it's Rome, is kind of flatten out and obfuscate the long tradition John is here actually invoking. Um, this image is straight out of, well, not straight out of, he's done, as he usually does, a bit of a twist out of Daniel 7. If you haven't read Daniel 7 by now, you really should. It is basically w probably the single biggest key text in understanding imagery that comes out of Revelations. I'll remind you what it says. Um, Daniel, our hero, I guess, the text is obviously stapled together with a prophecy text. And suddenly it switches into prophecy, and he sees these four beasts coming out of the sea. Um, those beasts are very clearly, well, as clearly as a prophetic text can be, mapped onto the four empires that conquer um, Israel that conquer the Jewish people. Um, and they get mapped into which empires they are in various ways that is further obfuscated by apocalyptic commentators since, but usually like Babylon, Medea, Assyria, slash Assyria, Persia, and Greece being the last one, the ten headed the seven headed monster, um, with these ten these ten horns. There it's very clear that the ten represents um, the ten rulers between Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes, who is responsible for the three and a half years. Uh, go read the Book of Maccabees if you want to remember all this, all the Hanukkah stuff. He's the bad Greek king who um, is forcing uh, the Jewish people to become Hellenized, basically, uh, and the Maccabees restore a kind of the theocratic rule uh, by and for the Jewish people for a minute. Um, now, obviously, what John is now doing is updating this into Rome, and his vision of Rome is this vision that it is all the worst parts of every empire, right? It has, um, instead of being individual beasts, instead it has the feet like a bear, it's like a leopard, it has the lion's mouth, right? Like, it's all of the previous ones combined, and of course, also, specifically, the Greek stuff, right? The many-headedness, the hydraness of it. Um, it's also Rome, again, because it's coming out of the sea, which if you are in, in John's case, Asia Minor, or if you are in conquered Israel, um, it is the Mediterranean. It is that, it is the empire that now controls the Mediterranean, which is, of course, Rome, right? 
and the dragon gave it his power and his throne and his great authority. Couldn't be clear what statement he's making about Rome here, right? Like, Rome's power is invested upon it by Satan, right? Um, Satan, having been defeated cosmically, is now instantiating a world order, and that world order is Rome. Um, empire becomes, in some way, Satan's body in this text. I was reading... Uh, the um, Apocalypse of People's Apocalypse of People's Commentary on the Book of Revelations, um, and they talk about their uh, the way that God becomes incarnate in Christ, and Satan, in this kind of parody of the Trinity, becomes incarnate in the Roman Empire, in money itself, in ideology. Um, a lot of commenters, a lot of commenters go to the place of this is the satanic trinity. This is, uh, Catholic commenters love to do the whole Satan can only parody, he can't create. Um, Satan is the anti-god, the dragon. Rome is the anti-Christ, this figure. And the second figure that is, will be called the second beast, the beast of the earth here, um, is everywhere else called the false prophet, the thing that brings community to this satanic order that is ideology itself, that seduces the nations and convinces them in the glory of the empire, the Antichrist here. Um, so this figure is somehow an icon of Rome. Uh, it has further weird semiotics attached to it. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, uh, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. What is up with this, like, death-wounded head? Well, if the heads are emperors, um, seven of which, it'll tell us later that five have come, one is current, and one is to come. Um, whatever. Like, there's, there's so many ways people have mapped that out. But usually the way people explain this one that has received a mortal wound um, is that it is a version of Nero. It is Nero Redivivitus. Nero come back to life. Um, Nero killed himself in 68 CE, uh, stabbed himself, um, but he was so well known as a persecutor of, first of all, the Christians, but also as just being truly one of history's greatest monsters, uh, that it was feared that this was a lie and that he would return. Um, and at first it was thought of as like he had faked his own death and had fled to Parthia. And in fact, we have several historical accounts of pretenders to being Nero, people who pretended to be the returned Nero, kind of fomenting an army and having some success in trying to launch, launch some kind of coup. And then it became a kind of um, horror story that someday Nero would return from the grave. Um, and it's possible that that's what John is here participating in, this idea of a head that has come back to life. I saw commenters also just kind of be like, in general, Rome will someday suffer some terrible wound. Perhaps the Protestant Reformation <laughs> will break the back of the Catholic Church, but it will survive, right? Um, Nero is almost universally regarded as who they're talking about here. Um, Nero was a very notable persecutor of the Christians. There's a lot of scholarship happening now about to what extent is... Um, the, the idea of the Christian martyrdom. Is it overblown? Are we now 
under-regarding it. But Nero and Domitian are really the two figures who we know um, did enact some kind of anti-Christian policy. Nero is the guy who does the circuses and feeding people to lions and all that, right? Um, So he does become a kind of great historical villain of Christianity. You'll remember when we did the Gospels, it's Nero who punishes Photina, the the um, evangelist, the woman who is called the Samaritan woman at the well, who uh, becomes one of the first people Jesus tells he's the Messiah and who like evangelizes to her community. Um, and in, remember she wanted water at the well. And Nero, when he meets her, uh, her martyrdom is that she is killed at the bottom of a dry well. Because remember, Jesus promised her she would have no need of water ever again, right? Um, he would give her a living water. And Nero loves to make a cruel, parodic joke of that. Parody is here throughout, right? You'll notice, again, the dragon invests his authority into this beast in the same way, with the same exact language, actually, as the father invested the lamb way back in the first chapters of this book. This beast, this anti-Christ, this type against Christ, this um, figure of Rome is worshipped, and the people say, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Um, there's a great, if again, if you if you do pick up the people's uh, apocalypse, um, there's a great, like, almost midrashic, close reading of this, where they talk about how, in the grammar of that, all of the, um, humanity itself is kind of objectified it no longer even has an expression of agency anymore nothing can make war against the beast who is like the beast and who can fight against it and the implicit answer is no one um and the people's apocalypse makes the point that that is the opposite message of christianity where who is like god is everyone right especially in the johannine tradition we saw that a lot where um we are invited to be children of god right we are invited to be perfect like he is perfect. Um, very cool. It's always thought struck me as a very spooky line, right? Who is like the beast and who can make war against him has sort of rattled around my head my whole life. It is worth mentioning, like, this is horrific imagery, right? Like, I'm kind of hand-waving over it. <laughs> like, oh yeah, the, you know, seven heads, ten horns. Like, even thinking about, even thinking about that sort of, I think specifically to me, what is so horrifying about this imagery is it's like grisly asymmetry. And there is to me something almost like Dark Souls, like Elden Ring-ish, Bloodborne-ish about this imagery, precisely because it doesn't work, right? Seven heads with 10 horns. Like, where are you putting the horns? Do some have one? Do some have three, right? Like, it's a really weird image. One of them is dead, right? Like, a dead head on a monster is, like, a really fucked up thing to invite the reader to imagine. Um, And this imagery actually continues in its weirdness with the second beast, but we have a little bit more to do with this first one. The beast was given a mouth, and that's interesting phrasing too, right? Like, we have to remember, even amid all this horror that this is all allowed by God, right? These agents are somehow God's scourge. As much as an anti-trinity is here being set up, and again, like, John does not have a concept of a trinity. I want to make that clear. But, like, as much as Satan is empowered here, his power is limited and his power is allowed by God, right? Um, 
This beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Of course, um, the emperors had blasphemous titles from the point of view of the Christians. Domitian famously wanted to be called our Lord and Savior, our Lord and God. A lot of them were deified after death, and some of them, like Caligula, etc., wanted to be deified even in life. Um, and it is very notable that Asia Minor, the, the regions John is addressing with his seven churches, was kind of the center of cult worship for the emperor, particularly like Pergamum, um, Ephesus too. Um, these were places where you were, the idea of the deification of the emperor was being practiced much more specifically um, as a kind of itself kind of colonial enterprise, a way to replace the, the gods operant in the region with um, uh, emperor worship. Um, so they have these blasphemous names. These names, by the way, would circulate on money, etc., right? You would, to even, as we'll see with the mark of the beast in a moment, to even participate in, com in commerce, you to some extent had to participate in the blasphemy that Rome was forcing upon you. Um, uh, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's the three and a half years again, time and times and half a time, right? Um, again, it's not clear if that is the same two and a half months, uh, two and a three and a half years as like the prophets were operating, etc. right? It seems like we're constantly doubling back on the same amount of time. Again, that is a, that is, uh, a belted limited amount of human time, um, allowed by God, half of perfection, also very specifically dictated by the real historical ramifications of Antiochus Epiphanes's, uh, blasphemy in the temples, right? Um, he has set up like an altar that was sacrificing swine. Um, three and a half years has become like a type of an allowed amount of time for something bad to endure, right? As I talked about before, it's it's about the amount of time I think of as the worst time of the pandemic where I just felt like it would never end. Um, and maybe it won't. <laughs> it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Uh, that is, those who dwell in heaven. There's, that is, is always kind of a sign that some editor has kind of looped in a gloss, right? Um, I don't know what that means. What does it mean that it, they're blaspheming those who dwell in heaven? Probably the martyrs, right? The, the people we saw populating heaven who were the agents that kind of expelled Satan with um, the lamb, right? Um, but blaspheming the dwelling, is just a way to talk about, like, the temple, right? Um, also, it was allowed, again, what is being allowed is important, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. There's that word again, right? Uh, the, the Nike word, conquering, is what it's most worried about. Um, sorry, there's so many screeching streetcars going by. Yeah, it has a nice harpy-ish demonic quality. I'll leave it in. Uh, <laughs> um it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and all the inhabitants of the earth. That's like the way it talks about sort of fallen man, right? Will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from, and this sentence is so twisty. If you if you have some time, I suggest looking up um, verse eight specifically in like Bible Hub, I know that thing puts, or Bible Gateway, I know that thing puts so much malware on your computer, but it lets you click through all the translations. The grammar of this is such a mess. Um, 
uh, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Um, and every good edition will have a footnote being telling you that the, the grammar there is really messy. Mine notes is also could be, or written in the book of the life that the lamb was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. The reason the grammar is so twisty there, the reason that the editions are struggling so hard to make sense of what it is saying is because it comes down to if it is saying um, everyone who is damned is damned beforehand or if um, what was preordained was the lamb itself. It's fighting against a possibility that the text is moving in a Calvinist direction. Um, and I know that that's retrojecting Calvinism, a medieval idea, a Renaissance idea, onto a first century Jewish text. Um, but that's what's at stake by the grammar there. Um, is it saying that the people who will be persecuted uh, and who were loyal to the lamb are preordained or aren't they? Um, I talked about this being Calvinist, but we actually know for a fact that first century Judaism was wrestling with these questions. We see them come up in, for example, Josephus. Um, it is one of the things that made the Sadducees kind of split off into this kind of secular Jewish group. It's one of the things the Pharisees were debating at the time. Is um, the next world, is salvation, is being among the elect something that is preordained? And that is very clearly, if we're honest with the text here at this moment, I think, very clearly what it is thinking about. Because um, if you look at the next sentence, and your edition may or may not have this marked off as like unusual speech, as kind of a weird kind of um, special phrasing here, like as though it were sing-song or something. Mine does. Let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive... Into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. It sounds like what that is trying to negotiate is, listen, the people who are going to be taken captive will be taken captive. The people who will be killed will be killed. And this edition actually is distorting the text to make it more closely match um, a phrase that... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew uses. Um, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you have heard me denigrate <laughs> the Gospel of Matthew before. Um, the Gospel of Matthew has a great many virtues to it. It is an, a fascinating historical document, but it very often errs on a politic that I find personally troubling. Uh, and this is kind of one of the flashpoints of my problems with the Gospel of Matthew. There's a moment in the garden where um, the, the apostles sort of offer up physical violent resistance to Jesus's arrest. Um, and one of them, Peter, although I don't remember which detail is in which gospels, but uh, Peter cuts off a servant named Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, to put away your swords, and here I'm always tempted to launch into the Jesus Christ superstar version of this moment. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells them, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that is very often taken to be a moment of Christianity articulating a kind of pacifism and non-resistance to violent extremes being visited upon them. Um, it is a very Matthean moment. It is very in line with the politics of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, 
It is, however, not in line, I think, with what this passage is saying. <laughs> I think this passage is saying, if you're going to be a captive, as in if you are destined to be a captive, you will be a captive. If you're going to be killed by the sword, if you're going to be martyred, you will be martyred. It is articulating that there is no way out of this. Um, and I think it is doing this in the shadow of the cross, right? Like, Jesus didn't make it out alive. You don't have much of a chance either, is I think the subterranean logic here. It says, it concludes this thought, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. It recognizes what it is articulating um, is a period of great testing, is a period where you will be marked as different uh, and you will be called to witness, which is all the word martyr means. You will be called to witness to your faith. Um, and that that witnessing means you have been written. There's something consolatory about that, right? Your great witnessing is recorded and has been recorded since the dawn of time, right? Since since the Lamb's ordination first occurred. Um, it is often used as citation for more Calvinist pre destined versions of Christianity, right? Those who will be saved have already been recorded as saved. Those who will be damned have already been recorded as damned. I do think in context, although it is true that that is what it's saying, I think what it is saying is that your suffering, your role in this martyrdom, in this persecution, um, is part of a larger salvation history. It is offering comfort. And I know that a lot of people have a lot of problems, justly so, with the idea of like suffering being something useful, articulating suffering as something that makes us better or whatever. Um, I do think it is articulating that position in the face of, as we just said, sort of a total abjection, a total objectification of the person before the logics of empire. Um, Speaking of the logics of empire, we have the second beast. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. Um, we know what the first beast is. You have to actually fight actively against the text to make the first beast anything other than Rome, because the text specifically tells us later, that's Rome. Um, what this second beast is, is trickier. Uh, it's from the earth. Uh, that means a lot of different things. One of the most interesting things it means to me is if the first beast is of the sea, if the first beast is from across the waters, if the first beast is Rome arriving from without, this beast arises from within. It arises from the land. It arises from the country around you. Um, I've been talking about how this is, uh, John is addressing Asia Minor. Um, what I find fascinating about one way of reading this beast is that it is about, you can do a lot of interesting colonial work thinking about the subaltern here. Can the subaltern speak? If he speaks, he speaks with the voice of the second beast, right? Um, the colonized are often forced to articulate their own colonization. They learn the language of their oppressors. Uh, they speak, I'm sorry, I'm doing too much, too much bad Gayatri Spivak here. Um, 
you speak in the language of that which has tamed you, has domesticated you, has objectified you. Um, and that is ultimately the only way you can speak. That is the horror of the second beast. It is kind of a way of thinking about ideology itself. It is the demon of ideology. Um, I saw a lot of people, commenters, talk about this as being like the demon's for, uh, chief propagandist, right? Um, his identity is very tricky to get our hands on. And you'll notice there was a slippage of grammar there again that just went by. Um, it says in this English rendering, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It's actually tricky to figure out if it means the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed or if this beast is the beast that has the mortal wound. There's some readings that say this is actually Nero, that it is both represented as the damaged head on the first beast and operates in its own power here as this second beast. That tricky slippage happens again at the end when it tells us about the number of the beast, and I'll flag it for you when we see it. Um, there was a job in Asia Minor um, where you were in charge of this sort of priesthood of the imperial cult. Um, and the people who were elected to it were often just like wealthy citizens. Um, you held it for a year. You were called the Asiarch. Um, and it was basically a political job. You were basically in charge of patriotism for Rome, um, except that that patriotism took the form of worshiping the emperor cult and building statues to him. Um, statues are consecrated. Statues get to have, like, divinatory powers. You roll dice before the statue. Um, it was sometimes ventriloquized, right? <laughs> so people would throw their voice for the statue. Um that's one very specific way the second beast is interpreted. It doesn't often uh, get to be a specific person in history. Um, it's called the, f the, the beast of the earth here. In every other case, for the rest of the book of Revelations, it will be called the false prophet. Um, it is the thing that brings people to the worship of Rome, to the sort of ideological body of Rome. Um, and the first beast in, is invested with Satan's power and his authority and all that. This is the beast that sells you on it. Um, I talked about how there's kind of like a an unholy trinity happening here. Another way to systematize this is that these two beasts are the sort of parody of, anti-type of the two prophets who we saw in chapter 11, right? They are the two entities who speak... The, the evil ideology against what the prophets were telling the world, again, for three and a half years, right? You'll notice, talking about parody, that it sounds like a lamb. It uh, has horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon, right? Again, we kind of have this both invocation of the lamb. It sounds like the la It looks like the lamb that was Jesus, um, but it has the voice of Satan. It speaks like a dragon. Really amazing. And again, profoundly upsetting image right the sort of lamb-headed dragon-voiced creature um it performs uh great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all that is the test elijah puts before uh the false priests right uh, it can do them um 
and by the signs that it is allowed, again, allowance, is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. It's, um, it's important, I think, that it can perform miracles, right? I think that is actually uh, quite canny and quite shrewd of John because empire does perform miracles, right? Um, that meme about how your boyfriend is always thinking about the Roman Empire, right? Like it did perform miracles. It was also built on the backs of conquering and slavery. Um, and in fact, the same colonial action this text is a record of. Uh, and it is foolish to pretend it didn't also perform wonders. And it wasn't by those wonders it seduced nations, right? Um, and dominated nations. I think that that is quite correct to point out here. This is, again, heading to a kind of ones who walk away from Omalas place. Omalas is a miraculous place. That's an important part of that story. It it, it does offer um, great signs, great wonders. Um, and I think that's an important detail to give us here. Uh, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Um, again, the People's Apocalypse has a great reading of this, where it's as this is talking about money, how money fetishization leads to objects becoming people and people becoming objects. And the great fetishization of money, which it says is like the body of Satan on earth, um, becomes a living thing that is allowed to speak and kill. Uh, a fact which I think in 2024 is very apparent to all of us that the inanimate, these idols, have been allowed to kill us, uh, have been allowed voices. Corporations get votes. Corporations are living. There's a villain I'm obsessed with in the Marvel comics. Uh, he's a creation of Grant... It is a creation of Grant Morrison um, in the Marvel Boy comics, which I read when I was writing... Um, I reread when I was writing Marvel Boy for a minute. Um, really just one issue of... Uh, I think Last Annihilation. He's a background character with Hercules. It doesn't matter. I was reading um, the old Grant Morrison comics, and there's a, a concept in them that escapes from the concept dungeon. <laughs> and it is Hexus, the living corporation, um, which is a thought form, which is a, uh, a mental parasite. It's an idea that escapes from Marvel Boy's ship uh, from another universe, and it is a living corporation. It it colonizes minds. Um, it exhausts resources until it has achieved planetary domination, and then it spores into other planets and into other dimensions. <laughs> um, and to me, that's such a wonderful way of conceiving of what John is articulating here, a kind of... Um, embodied evil that is not alive that is um is just these kind of uh, icons these idols that are nevertheless afforded more rights than the living and can speak and kill um again weird and horrible imagery here uh, abounds um and it it causes all both small and great both, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark 
that is the name of the beast or the number of its name before we get into the number like that is what empire does right it decides who gets to be part of commerce and i think that this this here basically horror movie image of what it's like to be on the outside and what it feels like to feel like you have to buy in you have to start using the emperor's coins you have to start literally trading with things as a a monotheistic jew imagine picking up a coin that proclaims the emperor is god and having to use it and feeling yourself debased in that use every day um so much ink spilt about this mark of the beast and they're going to put a you know barcode in your hand it's almost cute to think about barcodes now we've moved so far past barcodes (laughs) but when i was a kid it was like oh they're going to make you get a tattoo of a barcode um all the thousand ways science fiction and um, the fevered mind has imagined this uh, captures, I think, the horror of that sense. I saw some commenters that talked about how John is, of course, Jewish, and he's thinking here of um, the Teflon, the sort of like um, the phylacteries that Jewish people wear sometimes on their foreheads and on their arms um, as signs of their devotion to God here as being sort of parody. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. The tattoo the slave brand, all these ideas are very available to the Roman imagination and I think are here, again, being invoked in this sort of horrifying um, conveyor belt Fordist way, right? There is a real, to me, I I think that those images from the movie Metropolis, right, of like Moloch, the factory that devours, um, which is itself invoking like concentration camp images and all those things. Um, Okay, And then the thing that makes this passage truly famous, the mark of the beast. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. What is up with 666? (laughs) It is the number of a person. It calls for wisdom. Um, I saw people... I saw commenters say that it's Barack Obama doing the math for that. I saw people say Henry Kissinger. I saw people say uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Um, This number has been made to do a great many gymnastics over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia. Barbarossa, so many people have been the great beast. Um, What's the deal here? Well, uh, the first thing to do is apply the numerology we already know, right? Seven is the perfect number. We've seen it expressed over and over again in this text. It makes sense that if God's number is seven, then Satan's number is six. Um, The number of imperfection, that which falls short. Um, What is, again, wonderful and poetic and... uh, horrible and beautiful here is the repetition right six 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 one commenter i saw called it failure upon failure upon failure it has a kind of endless kind of um it feels like a computer error right it's sort of replicating itself over and over again in a kind of neurotic expression of its own failure six 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 like repeating over and over again um uh He seems to think we would get this. He seems to think his audience will understand this. And what I think he's actually saying is, think about the number. Think about that failure upon failure upon failure. Um, 
This is something we know happened a lot uh, in this period. For example, it's numerology. It, when it's Jewish, it's called gematria. Um, it's everywhere in the ancient world. For example, uh, we have graffiti at Pompeii re- re- um, preserved by the explosion, right? Um, and it says, the graffiti written on the wall says, I love her whose number is 545. Again, like, whoever that was, man or woman, uh, who doodled that graffiti is enjoying the riddle of the coded name here, right? In fact, the Sibylline oracles um, themselves, which exist in this kind of interesting um, dialogue between their Judaism and their proto-Christianity, semi-Christianity, um, refer to Jesus by the number 888 uh, because that's how you would, when you transpose his name into Greek, you can make it equal 888. Who is 666? Um, it's not as easy as you'd think. <laughs> uh, most commenters, and in fact, I do think this is the correct way of calculating 666, think it is Nero, uh, the Emperor Nero, um, who I've just talked about, the, the, the great persecutor of Christians who was dead, uh, who was feared that he would return. Um, if you spell his name in Greek, you get Neron, Kaiser Neron. Um, if you transpose that into Hebrew, you get Quaf, Samek, Resh, Nun, Resh, Vav, Nun. Uh, okay. <laughs> Quaff is 100, Samek is uh, 60, Resh is 200, Noon is 50, Resh is 200 again, Uh, Vav is 6, Noon is 50. Um, 666, if you total it up. Um, The big. Did I say that right? Yes, I did. I said that right. (laughs) The big tell um, that this is probably correct is that in many versions of extant uh, editions, extant copies of Revelations, we have instead the number of the beast is 616. Um, If you spelled it instead as of Kaiser Neron, as Kaiser Nero, uh, that is without the noon at the end, you would lose 50, and then you would get 616. Uh, Alan Moore, who was, of course, is, of course, when well, no, I was, he's, he's passed. Um, Alan Moore, very famous wizardy comic book writer, knew this number, knew this, and made it a joke. The Marvel Universe is 616, and the reason it's 616 is because, <laughs> is because Alan Moore did not have a high opinion of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> so when Captain Britain finds out what universe he's from, he's from 616, the, the bad universe, um, the number of the beast universe. Um, so 616 or 666 will both in different ways yield you Nero. Um, what's weird though about that and which several commenters I saw pointed out, um, even though this is almost universally regarded as the explanation for 666, is that it's kind of weird that it requires you to take a Roman name, transpose it into Greek, then transpose it again into Hebrew numerology to get 666. Um, that's a lot of steps. Um, but it's not that weird if you think about it, because what we've been encountering throughout this text is just how Jewish John's thinking is. If anybody in the entire New Testament 
would spontaneously expect his audience to understand specifically Jewish numerology, it's this guy, right? Um, and the nice thing about that is it deco- it makes the text, I mean, this is literally where we get the word shibboleth from. You have to be Jewish to understand it. You have to be, <laughs> it's not just you have to be Christian, you have to be a Jewish Christian <laughs> to figure out 666. That's kind of cool. That's kind of a nice little microcosm of the exact phenomenon we've been tracking throughout this text, right? That it is specifically, it demands Judaism of you um, in a fascinating way. I love that. I didn't know that, but I love it to think about it. And in fact, I saw many commenters say that's a reason not to accept 666 as Nero. In fact, it makes it to me more convincing that it requires this sort of step of Jewish decoding to figure out. Um, All right, a little long, but I'm not surprised, literally. (laughs) You couldn't believe how much I had to read for this week's episode. I had a lot of fun reading for this one. Um, Next time, your eyes will see the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is uh, stamping on the vintage where the grapes of Warath are stored. Is that how it goes? I don't know. I'm not American. Um, But we'll talk about all that. Till then, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.